in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel called Jesus is King. And we are in 1 Samuel chapter 29 tonight. Just to catch you guys up uh, on the context of what's going on here, you've got uh, David who has been appointed king by Samuel, even though Samuel's now dead, but David has not yet inherited the kingship publicly and physically through um, through the Israelites. He has been proclaimed by God to be king, but it is yet to be initiated uh, with the nation. So he has been chased out by an insecure uh, king named Saul, who knows he's not going to be king for much longer, but he is insecure and he, he's seeking um, relief, but he's not seeking God. And so uh, a couple chapters ago in chapter 27, you saw the... Um, the pinnacle of that chase in that David left the Israelites. So he's kicked out of the promised land. He's kicked out of his, his nation and he goes to the Philistines whom he was known for killing. And these are the enemies. And Saul in chapter 28, uh, in his last kind of gasp to, um, to make things right, seeks a medium uh, trying to figure out God's will. And as you guys uh, no, it did not go well for him. Samuel came uh, back from the dead and said that Saul was going to die within, um, as we know, 24 hours. And so with that being said, chapter 29 is only 11 verses. It's short. And this is one of those chapters, as we've had several of these, where they, they're kind of flyover chapters, right? You at home might read these and think, what's the purpose? What's the point? What's the theme? So we're going to do things a little bit different tonight. I'm going to read those verses for you to begin with. And I want you to think about how in the world do these verses point us to Jesus? Because we believe that all of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, point to Jesus and the gospel. That's the pinnacle of God's glory and the pinnacle of his story uh, for us as humans. So let's walk through these 11 verses and in your mind be thinking, what, what in the world, uh, how does this point us to Jesus? Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Remember, Achish is the king of the Philistines, and David has now been living with them and, and building trust with Achish for over a year now. So everyone's headed to war. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. So David has credibility uh, with King Achish, but the rest of the Philistine commanders are not cool with David and his men, which were roughly 600 men at this time. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place in which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? So that would be the God of Israel. You remember a few chapters back, this actually happened. Some Israelites were with the Philistines, and, and they, in the middle of a battle with Israel, decided, hey, we don't want to fight with the, or for the Philistines. We're Israelites. And they started to slaughter the Philistines. And then the Philistines started to kill themselves. And it became a big mess. And they lost and Israel won. And so they remember that. He shall not go down with us for battle lest he become, excuse me, for how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Remember Goliath, a Philistine, got his head chopped off? 
Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines, the lords being the commanders of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Remember, this is a non-believer. Um, but he, he sees David as a credible dude, and um, he knows a little bit about the God of the Israelites. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go with us, up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with your servants, with the servants of the Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to the return to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Okay, now, what in the world would we say these verses point us to Jesus? Like, what are we, what are we to take from these verses? Well, we know first and foremost it's a historical narrative, just like the rest of First Samuel. So it's talking about what happened with this army. Um, but think about it. Remember, up until this point, we see that David not only is a historical figure, um, but he's also symbolically showing us uh, what it's like to have a king in Jesus. Now, David is not Jesus, but Jesus is the better David. David was a great king, an amazing man after God's own heart, but Jesus is the better David. So if Jesus is the better David, that's our, that's our uh, foundation for understanding how this might point to him. And what does David do here? Well, David goes behind enemy lines. He's with the Philistines. He's with the enemy, and he, he's, he is going to battle for them. In the same way, Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, and he went behind enemy lines. Mankind who had sinned against God, who was cast out of God's sight, we, as Ephesians 2 says, were the enemies of God, all of us. And yet that's who Jesus came to be with. He, he, we are the Philistines, right? And, and even more so, you see David, he can't fight this fight for the Philistines. He's sent home. And yet Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection wins the war. Um, he conquers the grave over death and sin. And so you and I, as disciple makers called to continue the mission of God, we are to reflect this as we receive this. So the theme, and I know this might sound kind of funny, but the theme is what we would say living incarnate or incarnational living. You see, this theological term, the incarnation, has been popular uh, since the beginning of Christianity, but it's become really popular in recent years in regards to how believers, how the church should reach out to the lost world around us. Now, when I say incarnation, what I'm saying is God, who is spirit, taking on the form of flesh in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus was born through Mary and came to earth, that is the incarnation, right? And so we're going to see what that looks like a little bit tonight through David and his life behind enemy lines. To put it simply, when we talk about incarnate living, we're talking about living like Jesus did on earth. We're talking about 
uh, the truth um, becoming flesh, and you and I being the church wherever we go, uh, reaching out to people. What God did in the incarnation was he said, I'm coming down. I'm jumping into the mess that is humanity. And he fixed the problems. He solved the problem. And so you and I, when we reach out to others, when we make disciples, we're jumping into the mess of other people. And we're going to see some things tonight as to what that looks like to live incarnate like Jesus when he came 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? You guys hanging with me so far? I know we got funny church terms when we, saw, when we talk about incarnation, but it's a, it's a major theological uh, point for Christianity, and it's, um, it's something we can reflect. So let's jump back in and walk through this verse by verse. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with a quiche, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has now who excuse me, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have no I have found no fault in him to this day. All right. First thing we see, if you're gonna live incarnate, if you're gonna be a, a disciple maker in our city, is you have to be present to win. Maybe you've heard that term before. You have to be present to win. You see, David, simply in these first few verses, shows us this. He's behind enemy lines. He's with the enemy. He's hanging out with people who he probably shouldn't have been hanging out with. And we see through Jesus coming 2,000 years ago that Jesus had to come to earth. He had to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. Because this is the way that God told us it would go. If you look at Leviticus, way back in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 17, says without the shedding of blood, there is going to be no atonement for sin. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So God, and we've said this many times before, God did not have in his plan to ever rip open the heavens and say when he sees broken humanity, you and me, say, you know what, I'm just going to forget all this and you guys just, let's, let's just have a clean slate, try to do better and we'll, we'll, we'll move forward. No, there's justice. Somebody has to pay the price. Blood has to be shed because in the blood, as the Israelites understand, is life. And following God, having a relationship with God is life. So sin in saying, we don't want that, is death. And so, God shows us that Jesus had to come to earth. He had to die on the cross. He had to be present to win humanity, to pay the price. See, the gospel isn't just beautiful in the sense that Jesus paid the price for our sins. It's beautiful in the way that it shows God's heart. In the way that God chose to do it. Like we could all write love letters, right, to our loved ones. But those who you really love, you go to, right? You spend time with. You're in the presence of. Because that means something. And that's why it's so beautiful to see Jesus come to earth, because it's God saying, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. And we reflect this. Have you ever seen, you ever been to one of those uh, 
uh, you seen one of those raffle boxes, and you thought, okay, you know, I could put my ticket in there, or, you know, five uh, tickets in there, whatever, win whatever they have to raffle off. And then you see that one liner on it that says, but you must be present to win. And you're like, eh, what do you got to do? You got to decide in that moment, how bad do you want to win? Is it worth it? And to some degree, the church, the church has to make that decision on a daily basis. Are you going to sit on a pew and enjoy the grace of God and be filled to the brim with his spirit and all that you're learning from his word? Or are you going to get dirty? Are you going to get messy? And are you going to live on mission with God that everyone in this world would be able to hear the hope that we have in Jesus? And it starts right here in this city, in your home, in your workplace. It's not enough for us to have a missionary come in once in a while. For those of you who grew up in Southern Baptist churches or, or really most traditional churches, you see uh, once every few months that missionary from Africa or wherever comes in, gives their spiel, and everyone's like, this is amazing. And at most, what, you pray for them and, and support them financially? God's saying, that's beautiful, but I want you to be the missionary. Are you willing to get messy? And everyone is part of that plan and has that purpose. We talk about this, as you guys know, on a weekly basis. But here's an interesting thing. If you've been following this for a few weeks, has it not been kind of awkward to hear about David with the Philistines? Like, he killed thousands. He chopped off their biggest soldier's head. He found himself a few chapters earlier in front of Achish, the king, and he was drooling like a madman. Like, he's got a weird history. Doesn't it feel weird that he was hanging out with these people? You think about Jesus' ministry. What was the most awkward part of his ministry for the people who were around him? It was who he hung out with, was it not? The religious couldn't understand how he would hang out with sinners, how he would hang out with the tax collectors, how he would party with them. It's one thing to minister to someone. It's a whole other thing to party with someone. I mean, Jesus' life was spent with people who the religious could not believe he would hang out with. But he chose to. Let me ask you this. Who do you invest in? Who do you invest in? If Jesus was on earth right now in Salina, would any of us in this room ever cross paths with him? Would we minister to the same people that he would minister to? I mean, he hung out with lepers, people who shouldn't even be in the city. He healed uh, both Jew and Gentile alike. You know, they hate each other. He, he's blessing the Romans, who the Jews hate. I mean, he, every time he's reaching out to someone, someone else is hating on it. Would we, would we cross paths? Let me, let me say it like this. For those of you who have uh, financial investments, you know that if you, go to, um, if you go to a financial advisor, they might talk to you about your financial portfolio, right? And your portfolio is simply your collection of investments. So it could be stocks, mutual funds, bonds, all kinds of stuff. Your, your collection of all the things that you have financially invested in. Now, what about your relationship portfolio. The people that you find yourself on earth investing in. So, of course, you know you got friends and family. 
maybe your coworkers, other Christians. But who do you invest in? Because if you go to a financial advisor, what are they going to say is like step number one for what your portfolio should look like? They say it needs to be diversified, right? It needs to have some balance. It needs to have some safe investments and some risky investments. They're going to balance each other out. What is your disciple-making relationship portfolio look like? Is it full of safe investments? Other Christians who look like you, act like you, people you know uh, you're not going to ever go deep enough with or you don't differ enough with to where you're ever going to offend them? And like you could just ride this friendship out <laughs> till Jesus comes back. Nobody's going to hurt anyone's feelings. Or is it full of some risky investments? People who don't have perfect church attendance, people who may never show their face in a place like this. People who don't look like you, act like you, and even if they come to Jesus, they 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 ain't gonna ever be quite like you. Like they're just not. Them following Jesus is gonna look different than you following Jesus. Jesus' relationship portfolio was packed to the gill of risky investments. Packed to the gill. You don't hear him talking very much to the people he ministers to about their perfect uh, temple attendance, do you? Maybe part of it's because he knew they weren't going to have it. They are fishing. They are trying to get taxes from people. They're hanging up in trees. They're coming in the middle of the night. Like These are interesting folks. What does your relationship portfolio look like? I remember when we were uh, when we were living in Virginia, and we had roughly fifty people in this country church, about fifteen miles from the closest little town, and everyone uh, was white, everyone was middle class, and everyone had a job that was decent. And I remember the pastor, uh, who was a young guy, and I he, he challenged us to go door to door just. To, build relationships, not to have some canned speech, but just to, just to get to know the people who actually lived around the geographical area that this church met in. Keep in mind, this thing started in 1775, so they should probably know their neighbors, right? <laughs> it was 236 years old at the time we were there. Probably should go knock on doors and see who lives around us. And I remember being blown away. I remember we pulled into one uh, kind of backwoods house, and the person saw us out the window let their dog out, <laughs> and this big old German shepherd came up and just smacking on our window like we didn't get out of the car or nothing. We're just thinking, oh my, that was not by accident this dog is doing this, and they were just standing there at the door doing this number. And it's like, we're in the backwoods now. They don't want to talk to us. There are some rough people. Most of the people who lived in that geographical area were African American, and yet you want to know how many African Americans we had in that local church? Zero. I remember going back to the pastor after the first night. We got to actually talk to some people, hear their stories, and saying, we have no idea <laughs> where we actually live as a church. Like, we don't know our neighbors. We're not reaching out to them. Just because you live somewhere doesn't mean you're actually reaching those people. And I think some of us in Salina would be surprised at how rough parts of Salina are. How uncomfortable do you get even coming into Crosspoint? Which up until a couple of years ago really was not at this campus very diverse. 
There's some interesting folks that come. Maybe some of you, I don't know. (laughs) We're all interesting to someone, right? These are the people that Jesus wants to minister to. He came for the sick. And it doesn't just happen always very naturally. For some of us, what we have to do tonight is to create space in our lives to build relationships with people who we naturally don't come across. Because some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I go to work, I do my thing, I got my relationships, I don't, I don't know a bunch of non-believers. Got to create space. For some, it's as simple as going to a different restaurant. For others, it's, it's as simple as being intentional to where some of the places you are. You got non-believers all around you, but you don't build relationships with them. For others, it might simply be getting to know some other people in the church. You'll be surprised at who you're worshiping Jesus with. But you got to create space to build those relationships into your life. Verse 4. Got to be present to win. Verse 4 says, But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Remember, they had good reason to think this, because it had happened before. And is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. We complain about what our kids are listening to music-wise. Could you picture hearing this song on the radio? David has struck down his 10,000. Anyway, that's kind of a joke. But second thing we see. Second thing we see. If you're going to live incarnate, if you're going to live like Jesus in our city, you've got to be prepared to be hated. You've got to be prepared to be hated. Now, I know we say this flippantly in the Christian church. I'm not sure we know what being hated, what persecution really looks like in any way, shape, or form. But I think if you really follow Jesus and you live your faith out and you get risky with some relationships, you might find that even in old Salina, Kansas, you could face some persecution. You see, the Philistines actually show us two different types of haters. right? And hopefully this will make sense here in a second. The first is haters that come from inside the tribe. Keeping in mind that even though they don't follow the same God, David had been with the Philistines now for over a year. So they recognized, like, we know him. I mean, we, we, we're well aware of him. He followed Saul, all that good stuff. We, we know him, but we're still hating on him. For Jesus, uh, these inside the tribe haters were the religious, right? And if you're going to get risky and build relationships for the sake of Jesus' mission, you're going to have Christians who aren't on mission look at you and think, something's wrong. Maybe think, you've got to compromise if you're going to hang out with certain people. Of course, if you sin, you are compromising. But a lot of us are uncomfortable with criticism from those inside our own tribe. But you've got to be prepared for that. You'd think David's thinking, what are you guys, like, is this new? <laughs> you want me to go back? Like, did you not know I've been here the whole time? Akish is well aware I'm his bodyguard. He's well aware of me. The second kind of hate that you see from them 
is from outside the tribe. And I know this sounds odd that they can give you both perspectives, but they do. Because keep in mind, even though David is living within their tribe, they don't follow the same God. So they're naturally skeptical about David's relationship with his God. Like, hey, how about we get out in this battlefield and then David's going to decide, oh, I want to be an Israelite again and start chopping us up. Because we've been there, done that. Now, it doesn't say that David would do that, but let's be honest. We know he ain't going to hurt the Israelites. So he gets bailed out here by God and that he doesn't fight the Israelites. But pretty sure he isn't going to be fighting them anyway, even if he went to battle. So inside the tribe and outside the tribe, you're going to experience some hate. The people outside of Jesus' tribe didn't know what to do with them. The religious didn't know what to do because his view, um, what he showed them of God was too big for the religious box. They couldn't put God in their practices. They couldn't confine him. They didn't like that Jesus would heal people um, and who he hung out with. They didn't like that he would heal on the Sabbath. They, they didn't like what, what was being revealed about God through Jesus. And then those outside of his tribe, like Pilate, or Herod, they didn't know what to do with Jesus. You know, Pilate's wife is coming up to him saying, I got dreams about this guy. I just feel like we should stay away. Pilate's like, what do I do with this guy? He won't answer my questions. I don't know what to do. Herod's like, uh, let's just laugh at him. He's an entertainer. Like, what do we do? I mean, they didn't know what to do with this Jesus. And non-believers are going to be skeptical. You see, we know that Jesus tells us himself we're going to be hated, we're going to be persecuted for his name. The early church considered it a privilege to be persecuted in the name of Christ. But it's because they viewed it as sharing in the sufferings of Christ. There's a camaraderie that you experience with God when you walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. There's a camaraderie, an experience with God that's beautiful. Because we know all throughout church history, when God's people have their backs up against the wall, that's where God gets the most glory. And so when you share your faith, whether it be uh, Daniel in the lion's den or or, uh, Peter um, and his buddies going to jail in the early part of Acts, God gets glory in those situations. You see, effective missionaries will always be hated. Being hated by itself isn't necessarily a sign, though, that you're an effective missionary. And the primary difference, I think, between the hate that Jesus and the early church received and the kind of hate that he says we're going to experience compared to what you and I experience today is the why behind the hate. Why did they hate Jesus? They hated him in the purest form of hate. They hated who he was, or who he said he was, and what he did. How could you heal? How could you say you're God? They hated him. They said, blasphemy. For us, why are we hated? Is it because people see God in us? Or is it because they hate our methods? They hate our Christian culture. They hate our Bible tracts and our canned messages and our cheesy invitations to our events that seem kind of misleading. What do they hate us for? Not that all those things I mentioned are, are always bad. But if they hate us because of God in us, then this isn't personal. <laughs> this is between them and God. And that's the kind of hate that we're expected. 
if they hate us because of our methods, that's on us. Like if as a preacher, if people don't like what I'm saying because I'm speaking God's truth, man, that's just on them. If they don't like what I'm saying because I'm just a punk and the way that I'm presenting myself is bad, that's on me. I think for some of us, we, we don't know what hate looks like. We think that if God doesn't answer our prayer and bless us with something, we're hated. If someone we invite to church decides to go to another local church, like that's persecution. <laughs> think about it. Folks, um, even in our own city, whether they be Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, folks that you know theologically, they're not quite lining up with, with Christian doctrine. A little weird offshoot. You say, well, would you be Mormon or would you be a Jehovah's Witness? And you might say to yourself, well, no. And hopefully deep down it's because theologically you know some differences. But is it not first and foremost because you kind of creeped out by the way that they present themselves, their methods? We say, oh, that's obvious. Like, I don't like someone coming to my door and, and going through this canned speech, and it just feels weird, and it's odd. And they come two at a time, like all that. Guess what? Reality check. As much as I love being a follower of Jesus and being here at Crosspoint, that's how the world sees us. That's how the world sees us. Sometimes the best missionary advice you can get is to simply be normal. <laughs> To simply be normal, be filled with the light of Christ. And drop the Christian culture. And you know, most of us don't know that we have it, right? It's kind of like, um, I mean, we're all, we're all blind to culture when you're immersed in it. It's like asking the proverbial fish uh, to define water. <laughs> like, well, he doesn't really know. I mean, he's immersed in it. Water is just water. So what I would say is that you and I, we've got to strive to be hated for the right things, right? We've got to strive to be hated for the right things. That people see truth in us, that they see love in us, that they are not hating us for us, but they're hating us because they see God in us. So I'm talking about being hated because we as the church here in Salina, Kansas, love what the world would say is the unlovable. That, that we as the church are hated because we do not compromise our conscience and our conviction because of an election where some say you got to vote this way you got to vote that way no don't vote at all or you got to vote this way and preachers are telling you this and the world's telling you this and you don't know what to do all i'm gonna say is you don't compromise and vote against your conscience i promise that's all i'll say about politics it's following jesus when no one else is following jesus it's people seeing God's power through you. What they hate is God. And our job is to make sure it's God they see and not just us. I think we have to mentally prepare for that and not get caught off guard. Sometimes when, when you're in effective ministry, you need to know people are going to hate you more than ever. I remember when we went out to Utah and I dreaded, oh my, I dreaded because we lived next door to the church building. I dreaded going outside and looking at the front door in the morning because someone might have posted uh, some kind of hate note on, on it. We had uh, a Muslim guy come through and he gave me this condemning note. We had um, 
We had one crazy dude in the community wrote me handwritten 20 pages of crazy talk and, and hate. Um, but I keep all this. This is how um, I get it. I'm odd. I keep all this in my desk to remind me. This is probably some of the most effective ministry I had was out there. And sometimes the hate mail is a reminder that I was doing something right. My favorite was the old boy who was traveling across the world, he, not the world, the, the nation on bike, and he considered himself this prophet of God. And he went and he posted, I didn't know at the time, but he posted some hate uh, notes on our front door. And then after that, he went over uh, to our house and he knocked on the door and he said that he was traveling the country and needed help. So for an hour or two, I helped fix his bike. His bike was broken. I went and got him some food. Like I, I ministered to him and then he left. And after he left, I went over and found that he didn't, he, he posted some hate notes about how, um, how we're not true shepherds because we're not in the church building all the time and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh my, he had, he had no idea um, that I'm going to get, or maybe he does. But either way, it was awkward. It was awkward. But Christians know, Christians know that it's better to be hated by a dying world uh, when you're secure in that you're loved by a living God. Uh, it's worth it. It's worth it. Verse 6. Then Akish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Third thing we see, if you're going to live like Jesus, if you're going to live incarnationally in our city, it takes time to build credibility. It takes time to build credibility. So David, not only is he among the Philistines, so you've got to be present to win. Not only is he experiencing some hate from those around him, but he also sees that he's built some trust and credibility with Akish. Why? Because he's got a proven track record. Akish, anyhow, thinks that he's a faithful dude. And so he gives him the benefit of the doubt. You ever wonder why Jesus spent 30 years on earth before his three-year ministry? He has a whole bunch of time. He could have been doing miracles. He could have been doing all kinds of amazing stuff. And I'm sure there was some stuff going on. Jesus is building credibility with those around him. He, he's walking with them. He's loving them. I'm not saying that's the only reason. Um, God's bigger than just that. But he's building credibility. Even in his three-year ministry, he's essentially on a camping trip with a bunch of teenagers. It's one thing to minister during the day and go back to your home at night. But to live with them, that's crazy, right? That's crazy. And that's what he does. You see, he's showing them that I'm with you. I don't, I don't abandon you. That's the heart of an incarnational ministry is presence, is availability, is saying I am in the mess with you. Because it takes time, does it not, to show God's love. It takes time and experience and ups and downs to thoroughly show God's forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. You, you gotta, if you're going to show God's forgiveness, that means you've got to be around someone long enough to have a need for forgiveness, right? Someone sinned against somebody. Are you putting yourself in a place to where you are able to build 
long-term relationships with those that you minister to? Are you putting yourself out there long enough to be able to truly show God's love? Because how often in the church, even when we're talking about making disciples, do you and I, when we gather for things like this, we we say to ourselves, oh, I was reaching out to so-and-so, but they just don't really seem to be receiving, you know, what what I'm saying and showing, and so I'm going to move on to someone else. And we bail on it. And sometimes that might be what God's telling us to do. But in general... For a lot of it, that, like we're just getting to the point of credibility with some of the relationships where we can actually effectively minister to them. And that's when how many of us want to bail. You see, people see how important and how powerful truth is when truth sticks. And so whatever method the church uses, it has to be one where we stick, where we show that we don't abandon people. That's why in our grow groups, we have what we call grow group adoption. Many of you know, this is the intentional reaching out to a specific group of people over and over and over and over and over. Not just a service project once in a while, but a long-term investment. Listen, I think the church, and by church I mean me, you, we've got to have a fundamental shift in what we view as outreach. In the sense that we are in the middle of a generation that views outreach as an event, right? It's an event. Think about someone in the community, maybe someone struggling with addiction, who genuinely needs help and they want to hear about God. What are they going to do with an event? What are they going to do with one of our events, right? But how many of us feel like, well, I'm reaching out because I went to an event. I'm not saying events are all bad, please. But when they're in the context of long-term investment, they can be good. But many of us, we, we, we throw a block party or we do this event um, that lasts a couple hours. And then we go home and we sleep well at night saying, man, I'm, I'm reaching out. And yet we will never talk to the people that we reached out to ever again in many cases, right? We, we've got to shift from event-driven to Long-term investment to reaching out consistently over a period of time. It's like most of us grow up with an idea of foreign missions that looks like a one-week mission trip and then you don't ever see them again. It's like, gosh, that feels weird, doesn't it? Like Maybe we need to build a partnership, a relationship, so that we can build credibility. Let me ask you this. Who in your life right now have, have you built credibility with that maybe you stopped ministering to that you need to revisit? Maybe someone that you've gone through the mess with them already and for whatever reason the relationship stopped or slowed down and you need to renew your hope for what God wants to do in that. I, w- I was given a few tickets to the K-State game this upcoming Saturday and I love sports and whatnot, and so uh, I was pumped about it, and I was initially thinking, um, because Tara Tara can't go, I was initially thinking, I could take a couple, few uh, young guys I'm pouring into, or or just people, um, you know, in the church, I was thinking all kinds of stuff, and God, he, he was prompting me, you need to invite your family, my family, you know, I love my family, but as, as, 
they know, as um, many of you know, that most of them aren't, aren't believers. I think of my family. Huh. I mean, I'd like to invest in someone that I'm reaching out to, right? And God's reminding me, like, you have a lifetime, a lifetime of credibility and membership, I mean, just relationship with them. Continue to pour into them. Who have you poured into that you need to go back and reach out to? I think we've got to reorient our lives, our energy, our time to those relationships. And last but not least, in verse 8, And David said to Akish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Akish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Last thing we see. Only Jesus can save. I actually changed this point in my notes to, uh, to let Jesus fight for you. I think that's a little bit more of an accurate statement. Have you seen the parallel here? Saul, he's got David, King David, his most loyal servant that he thinks is betraying him. And what does Saul do? He kicks him out of the land. Then you got the Philistine king who's got this David as well. And David's going to fight for him. And he pushes him back. Like these people, do you have any idea who you got? <laughs> do you have any idea who you got? It's funny. You go way back to the very beginning of this book, and the Israelites wanted a king just like the other nations. And Saul has become a king just like the other nations. They have the king, the true king, with them, and yet they do not want him to fight. How many of us have followed Jesus for a while and we're at a place where we'll tell others about how Jesus can heal, how how Jesus can fight your battles, how Jesus can do fill-in-the-blank but we haven't let him do that for us recently. You see the incarnation, Jesus coming to us into our mess to heal us is still an open invitation for your life. I came home a few hours ago and Silas greeted me at the door and I saw him come to me and then I saw over in the kitchen that he had trashed it up. He had all these checkers everywhere. They were on the table. They were on the floor. They were under the table. They were everywhere. And he knew he had made a mess. We've talked to him about making messes since the day he was born. Like he's just, that's what kids are, right? They're just little mess makers. You love them, but you know they get themselves in a mess. Now, if you found yourself rebuked for getting in a mess long enough, you'd think that eventually you'd stop asking uh, for help from mom and dad to clean that mess up. But you know what? He came up to me and the first thing he said is, Daddy, I made a mess. Will you help me clean it up? From the outside, you might look at that and say, "Mm, Silas, he probably is pretty upset. 
your dad probably isn't going to help you clean up that mess. Matter of fact, if he's a good dad, he'll, he'll teach you how to clean up that mess and tell you to do it, and, and you'll learn some discipline through it. But I'm a daddy, and, and I have a daddy's heart. And so I said, yeah, buddy, I'll clean up your mess. And without asking questions, I got down on my hands and knees, and I guided him as we cleaned up that mess together. You know, sometimes the hardest people to reach with the gospel on a daily basis are the missionaries themselves. Because we stop asking God to jump in our mess because we're so busy jumping in everyone else's mess. And we develop the teacher-student complex. The second that you don't just receive, but now you can give, and you start to see God working through your life to other people, Sometimes you neglect that you still need to receive it. And you stop learning, you stop growing, you stop experiencing. And we've got to remember, you might be a spiritual leader in here tonight, in your home, in your workplace, in the church, but we're always, first and foremost, followers. You might be a leader, but we're always, first and foremost, followers of Jesus. And so we say it all the time to help the church realize that they're missionaries, that what God wants to do to you, he also wants to do through you, but remember tonight, you got to enjoy the same message that you proclaim. And remember tonight that the, the opposite is true in that what God has been doing through some of us, he wants to remind us he still wants to do to us. He still wants to do to us. Yesterday I turned 32 years old. 32. And I'm an introspective young pup anyhow. And so a day like that, on my birthday, I'm going to um, usually spend thinking about what God has done in bringing me this far and, and what he's going to do in the future. And I didn't do much of that yesterday. But I had a good chunk of time where I just spent just talking to God, just being refreshed, just enjoying a father-son relationship. I need that. If you're going to be a disciple maker, you got you got to be able to let God pour into you as you pour out to others. you got to be filled up as you pour out. So let me simply ask you as we start to wrap this up tonight. How's your soul? How's your soul doing? We minister to people from the Holy Spirit that God places inside of us. But we also minister out of our soul. If you're depleted... It's going to be hard to effectively minister. For some of us, we, we need to just enjoy. We need to stop and enjoy. We need to stop being the, the American family on Thanksgiving where the mama makes all of the meal and, and works hard and everyone gathers and eats. And who's the last person who eats? Mama. And what do we do in our culture? We say, that's, that's a hardworking, great, wonderful example. And we need to be able to say, you know what? You help cook this meal. You need to be eating it first. Come on, I'm getting in front of this line. As disciple makers, we got to be eating the good stuff that we're giving other people. Take a deep breath. Enjoy God's grace. Enjoy his favor. Enjoy his acceptance of you through your faith in Jesus. And let your soul 
be filled up. Because incarnational living isn't just about reaching the lost. It's also following Jesus' example on earth of the thriving relationship he had with his Father. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer.